So, I'm going to talk about a number of different things associated with Anzac Day. And um, it's a funny thing, you know, that Anzac biscuits have become associated in many people's minds with Anzac Day. But the funny thing is, they probably didn't exist <laughs> during the First World War. And um, as far as we know, the first recipe that was published in Australia, and by the way, this Anzac biscuits are a bit like pavlova. Both New Zealand and Australia claim to have invented them, so there's a little bit of rivalry across the ditch over the origins of both pavlova and of uh, Anzac biscuits. But the first recipe published, as far as we know, was actually in 1917 in a Countrywoman's Association cookbook, and there have been all kinds of variations on Anzac biscuits since. The original recipe, published in 1917, didn't have coconut in it. Most, most Anzac biscuit recipes these days have coconut in them. But the original biscuit didn't, one, because coconut was very hard to get hold of, and two, because of all of the ingredients that are used today in Anzac biscuits, it, was, it had the least shelf life. And um, so when Anzac biscuits were made and sent across to the troops, which wasn't in the First World War as far as we know, they needed something that would actually keep for a long time because it could take months to get to the troops. The Anzac biscuit you have there on the right-hand side, that's a fairly recent recipe. On the left-hand side, those Anzac biscuits look like the ones my grandmother made. And the original Anzac biscuit was actually a very hard biscuit, obviously because it was intended to keep for a long time. And I, I remember my grandma's Anzac biscuits, they were quite light in colour like those on the right of the picture there, but they were actually very, very hard. And these days, most recipes make quite soft, sticky, gooey Anzac biscuits. Um, the, in the bottom of the picture there, we've actually got the original Anzac biscuit, which was called the Anzac tile. And it was a tile because it was so hard, would you believe the Australian War Memorial still has some that, that have <laughs> carried over from the First World War. The picture on the left is uh, a picture of one such tile. They were essentially made with, with um, flour and water, very few other ingredients, a bit of salt. And they were baked slowly, so they came out very hard. A lot of soldiers found they were just about impossible to eat, so used to grind them up and make them into a kind of porridge. The uh, middle picture in the bottom there, that is actually an Anzac tyre which was used as a postcard, a Christmas postcard. <laughs> and it was posted in the mail back home. And the one on the right, it actually comes from the Boer War, that one. That's an, um, a biscuit that was actually made into... A, um, a picture frame and the edging of that is wool which has been sewn around the biscuit there's a photo of a soldier in the middle and around it you can't see it terribly well because that one's I've, I've shrunk it a bit but there are bullets there are actually eight bullets around the, the photo there so these um, army ration biscuits had a lot of different uses <laughs> other than than eating but uh, these days, a lot of people do associate Anzac biscuits 
with the original Anzacs, but that's one of those myths that has grown up over the years. And you've actually got to go back to original documentation to learn that the truth was something different from the myth which has grown up. And that has parallels, of course, with the way in which people use the Bible today. A lot of people think they know what's in the Bible, but unless you actually go back and read it as a source document, you often get things wrong. Here's another photo. This is from the Australian War Memorial. Seven, seven Days Biscuit Supply at Le Havre in, in, in France. This is 1918, so this is towards the end of the war. Obviously, if you're fighting in the trenches, where it's damp most of the time, you can't use normal food. And um, so the, the original army ration biscuit, sometimes referred to as the original Anzac biscuit, was um, one of the major forms of, of ration. I don't want to dwell too much on it, but here's a photo of some, some diggers. Uh, the Australian soldiers got the name diggers because of the way in which they dug trenches and lived in trenches. They had a good reputation for um, digging trenches. They dug them very quickly and um, hence they became known as the diggers. My grandfather was in the Light Horse Brigade. The famous uh, Bronze Whaler was the horse of, of choice. They were a stock horse um, bred in the country areas of New South Wales. They weren't really a purebred strain or, or a, like a thoroughbred, but they, they were chosen because of their size. I think they had to be 14 hands high. They were usually a brown colour, sometimes darker, and occasionally they were a grey, and I've even seen pictures of, of white uh, whalers that were used by people in the Australian Army. I've been able to source my grandfather's war records. They are available, and uh, as they are for all of the soldiers who went to World War I. The record that I looked at runs for some 29 pages. That's just a little piece of the, the um, first page. There's a whole lot of interview processes that they had to go through. I, um, I like this one because it is my grandfather. It's his handwriting. I recognise that handwriting. Um, but my grandfather was very precise. There was a question, I don't know whether it's up there, but there's a question that says, country of birth. And my grandfather wrote, wrote South Coast, New South Wales. <laughs> yeah. He was a farrier. You can see that, uh, what is your trade or calling. And um, he was a farrier. He did an apprenticeship as a farrier with... Um, uh, Mr. Simpson, Sam was his name, I think, and he was a very well-known man around Bermagui, where my grandfather lived for most of his life, although he was born in a little town a little bit further north called Tilba Tilba. And um, so he was there as a... He was in the Light Horse Brigade. He was actually in the Sinai for most of his service. He um, was wounded twice, I think. He showed me the scars once once uh, in the leg and once in the, in the side. And um, he also got sick. He got, um, um, what do you call that, mosquito-borne disease? Malaria. He got malaria, yeah. So he was hospitalised.
but he saw quite a bit of service for, for a couple of years, and he, he died in 1985. And um, it, it's interesting to me that they kept records after these guys were discharged because on the very last page, it's got the stamp deceased, 5th of the 12th, 1985, which was when my grandfather died at 93 years of age. And Jeanette's granddad, he was in the war as well. We've got his medal somewhere that was actually passed on to Jeanette some years ago. It's interesting that in World War I, some 18 million people died. About um, 10 or 11 million were soldiers, and the remainder were civilians. Some 460,000 Australians enlisted, about 60,000 died. So that's a pretty fair price to pay. But interestingly, after the Second World War, or towards the end of the Second World War, there was a worldwide outbreak of flu. It's believed that it started in Spain, where something like 8 million people died as a result of it. And it spread around the world. Some people suggest that it was because you know, soldiers were returning home from Europe, they, they carried the virus. And worldwide, some 60 million people died of the Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919. So nearly, probably around three times the number of people who were killed in the war actually died as a result of the influenza. I read some really interesting historical records where there were estimates made of the number of people who died in Australia and they vary between about 12 and 14,000 people. You have to understand that a lot of people died from the flu back then anyway. There was a vaccine, believe it or not, that was developed in Australia. I have no idea how effective it was. But if you have a look at the data, there were epidemics usually associated with flu or some kind of pneumonia that happened every five or seven years or so. But when you look at the records, there was a very definite increase particularly in the year of 1919, when a lot of soldiers, of course, were, were coming home. So it was a pretty terrible time, not just in Australia's history, but in the history of the world. And I know that there are people who criticise Anzac Day on the basis that we don't want to glorify war. I don't actually see people glorifying war at Anzac Day ceremonies, I think, Often, they reflect in sorrow at what human beings can inflict on other human beings. And there's always the expression of a desire for peace. The photo up there is of nurses and children standing outside the Melbourne Exhibition Building in 1919. And there I've got other photos of the inside of the Exhibition Building, which was turned into a makeshift hospital for people suffering from influenza. It was incidentally mainly young people who died as a result of the influenza. People under the age of 25, a lot of children. Obviously they didn't have perhaps the, the built-in immunity that adults have because they've had various strains of the flu before. But you know, the Bible has something important to say about the 
origins of, of war. And during the week, I just really felt a nudge by the Holy Spirit to think about the story of Cain and Abel. The first uh, born in human history was, was Cain and the first murdered was, um, was I've got it the other way around, haven't I? The um, first born, no, it was Cain and the, the first murdered was Abel. So Abel was a sheep farmer. Cain was a crop farmer, so they were doing different, different things, had different calls on their life. Both of them, however, brought offerings to God. And I might actually read the full passage. I've had to um, cut it down on the slide there, obviously, because I can't fit it all in. Otherwise, the font gets far too small. But if we go to Genesis chapter 4, it's interesting, isn't it? You don't get too far along in the Bible before somebody's murdered, which has set a bit of a pattern for humanity, I think, um, over the ages. But if we go to Genesis chapter 4, this is how it reads. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have quite a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And you can read that passage, I suppose, and wonder, well, what was wrong with um, the sacrifice of, of Cain? Well, there's a hint in those verses in Genesis because God says, if you do well. And by implication, he wasn't. He wasn't a righteous man. And that's borne out in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 uh, to 12. And again, I might just read around the two verses that I have up there because it's quite instructive, I think. We're coming right near the end of the Bible. One John three. We'll start at about verse. Um, we'll start at about verse nine. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his that's Jesus seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of, not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. 
For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And so John offers the antidote to that which causes uh, disruption, hatred and ultimately war. It's, it's love. And of course we can get all soppy and sentimental about that and join protests and say, you know, make love, not war. I don't think that's the intention of this passage here. I think the intention here is to make us aware that it is wickedness that is the cause of war. And fundamentally, wickedness comes from Satan. You see, that passage in John says, Cain who was of the wicked one. The wicked one is Satan, uh, the devil. And we're not given a lot of history of Cain. There's just a few verses there in Genesis. But what we can know for sure is that he did not do well. He was not a righteous man in the eyes of God. And that was the reason why God did not accept his sacrifice. His response was to become angry and he projected his anger onto his brother and that is what led him to murder his brother. Let's move on and have a little look in um, the book of Samuel. Remember, Israel was originally established by God to be what we call a theocracy. They didn't actually have a civil government. There was no separation between that which was, if you like, religious or spiritual and civil government. So they didn't have a separate arm of society called civil government. Samuel was a judge over Israel, so he became the person who represented God in disputes and in establishing what was righteous and acceptable practice, etc. He had two sons whom he eventually appointed as judges over evil, as, as we do. We, as we get older, we look for successes. But his two sons actually were wicked people themselves. They accepted bribery. They didn't provide the kind of justice that God expects his people both to provide and to experience. And so the people of Israel clamoured to be like all of those around them and have a king. So they didn't see that their solution was to go to God. They saw that their solution was be like everyone around them and have a king. So Samuel, being in his position, he goes to God and asks God, Well, what about it? The people want a king. What shall I do? And God actually says, give them a king. In a sense, against his better judgment, because he knows what the results of having a king would be. This is just a snippet. This is just verses 10 to 12 out of... um, the Bible. I'm using the New Living Translation here because it's a, it's a very easy one to read. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. 
Samuel said, The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plough his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. And it goes on then to talk about how the king will tax the people to finance war. All of these, if you like, I was going to say evil consequences, perhaps they're not evil, but undesirable consequences will follow should you decide to have a king. In other words, once you become a political nation, these are the kinds of things that will happen. And guess what has happened through human history? Kings have gone to war. We don't have kings as much today, but we have governments democratically elected in many countries. But guess what they do? They go to war. They recruit our sons and now our daughters to join the various arms of the uh, defence forces. They tax us. Industry is harnessed to produce the instruments of war, the machinery, the aircraft, the ships, tanks, transport vehicles, the bullets, the guns, all these things. The Bible warned us way back then, God warned way back then that this would be the consequence. And why is that? Because kings, because people in positions of political power and influence don't always line their lives up with the word of God. And so we live in a world which is an imperfect world. The reality of our world is that there are wars. The reality of our world is that people die in war. And as we saw in the First World War, which is what prompted the declaration of Anzac Day, 18 million people around the world died. 60,000 Australians died. Um, And then partly as a consequence of that, as the soldiers came home, this influenza virus was spread and another 60 million people died worldwide. In the book of uh, 1 John, it says clearly what we've been told right from the start. The main thing is love. We are intended to love one another, to love one another as Christ loved us and as he loves us. Is war going to end before Jesus returns? No, because the wicked one still has sway through men and women who listen to his voice and not to the voice of God. What would I do? I probably wouldn't be called to go to a front line because I'm too old now, but I'd be like my grandfather. I'd say yes to defend the good things that we have in this country, even though I know that the ultimate cause of war is actually the sinfulness of humanity, the wickedness of humanity, which is actually um, caused directly by, by Satan. But I'd be like my grandfather because of love, because I love my country, because I love my um, fellow citizens of this country. 
and because I also love the freedom that we have in this country, a freedom which is not accorded to citizens in many other places. So we're going to have to wait until the second coming of Jesus before peace breaks out big time. And it's wonderful that so many people are committed to the idea of peace, but unless they understand that it's only Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, who can ever institute real, lasting, true peace. And really the world has to come to understand him as saviour of the world before we can actually find a solution to war. What I'd like to do now is to read a couple of poems. Uh, these poems were written by World War I diggers. Well, two of them were. There's one that's actually written by my brother, who is a poet, and he's had a number of poems published. Just a little bit about the people who wrote these poems. Um, they're from an anthology, and my brother was um, the co-editor of this uh, anthology. And uh, just reading through the poetry, it really is amazing how people found the time to write in the trenches or wherever they were, or even found the time to reflect on what it was that they were experiencing, because not all of the poems were actually written as people were, were fighting. But there are, there are two poets that I want to share with you. One is Harley Matthews. He was born in 1889 and lived through until 1968. He enlisted in the 4th Battalion Infantry in August 1914 as a private and he was in Gallipoli. He landed at Gallipoli on the 25th of April. He was mentioned for conspicuous gallantry, wounded in the calf in August 1915 and evacuated to London via Alexandria. He was quite a poet actually. He wrote a lot of poems and had a number of anthologies published. The other was Henry Price, born 1891, died in 1963, enlisted in the 9th Machine Gun Company in May 1916 and served as a signaller in the 23rd Machine Gun Company in France in late 1917. He was concussed by artillery fire in October and discharged as medically unfit in February 1918. And he wrote a number of poems as well. So, let me try to read it. I don't know whether I can read it the way the original poets would ever have written it. And they're not specifically religious poems, but I think they give something of the heart of the people involved. This first one is called The Day Before. It's fairly long. So, um, but you might want to just close your eyes and imagine what it was like for Harley Matthews. We went out in the afternoon. The hills were standing knee-deep in the bay, watching it all, unmoved. It was like a forgotten dream, the way the sunlight struck a house and trees ashore. But now there was no thinking back. We bore down past a troop ship, still at anchor. Then the living arms of men tossed upward. From across the water rolled their voices in one shout, cheering us on. Our hands rose from our throats and answered tore before we knew. 
more ships, more men, all down the channel. It was cheering back and forth. Long after we were gone, uh, we heard it as some ship moved off and followed seaward, shout after shout. Off, that was stronger than a thought of home, woman or child, more real than all the past. The hills might stand and know, we moved at last. All morning there had been ships going out. Now we were with ourselves. We heard the water pushed aside. We felt the engines thumping. With our hearts they beat darkly. Men lounged about and talked. One dealt cards to some others. It was all the same. Words made no sense against that steady surge forward of ship and mind. Against it all, none, player or watcher, cared who won the game. The day was going. Where the ships had left a haze, the land was hovering on the verge of fading utterly. A whistle call screeched overhead. Up there the colonel stood. At dawn, we heard him say, Tomorrow, men, perhaps, some of us. The sea swamped his voice. Yes, but our names will live forever then. I say the man may still go back who would. Let him stand out. It's not too late yet. None stirred. We knew at heart there was no choice. He'd said, stand out. Who would? God there? Who could? One whispered, did you see? His eyes were wet. We filed below. The sun was nearly set, pushed onward too. But he was sure to see tomorrow. We... Only our names might live. How long beyond men's, mem men's memory? And what were names? Something more than words, undying notes that fluttered round the sun, forever once released from earth? What chords then would go mounting through the morning light tomorrow when the night was done? I heard a ship's engine pounding fearfully. We were on deck, all lined up in the darkness. The ship was trembling as she slackened speed. No sound, only the water washing cold along her length. No light showed anywhere, aboard or on the sea, but a star might scribble in a wave's gulf, then the crest rolled and smudged all out, lest anyone might read. And, what, and, a while, and we a while ago sat in the light below, where men ate, drank and spoke. Some sang, for that was our last meal together. Here we stood now, scarcely of the world of men, no sound to tell we lived in it, no sight, air, water flowed by, immense moments passed. The morning star leapt from the deepest band of darkness, high up. Was that cloud or land? Now it was a shot with running fire. What hand had kindled that? Soon it was all made clear. Over the sea, the sound of rifles rang. That was Harley Matthews. The day before. And this is actually a response to the day before by my brother Malcolm, who, as I mentioned earlier, has written a number of, a number of poems and he's got a great interest in uh, the diggers of the First World War, in their poetry and in particular what happened to them, the kinds of things they felt and wrote after, after the war, because, of course, it had an ongoing impact.
on the soldiers who returned, including my granddad, who didn't actually talk a lot about the war. Every now and then he'd tell stories, and there were some things that made him laugh a lot. Um, but, um, yeah, he never really shared the horrors of the war. Most, most men kept it in. So this is The Hours, Harley Matthews, The Day Before, by my brother Malcolm. There is no battle scene here, only that anticipatory afternoon, the evening and the ticking hours before the deformed dawn. As the troop ships passed up and down, the animal roars of loaded men, arms thrust upward, echoed across the channel. The wet-eyed colonel addressed these men. Some, he said, their names would live forever, that any man could stand aside. There was no choice. Below decks, each man was alone in the multitude, as another poet had said of men in war. No past was real. They spoke meaningless words, a meal, a song, a drink. The engines pounded with the hearts of men. The, slips, the ship slowed, quieter now, deep dark. The before carried away like flotsam in the slip of the effortless sea. The soldiers, on deck, lined up, wait. A smudge below the horizon, the hills that knew. And you can see the resemblance there between his poem and the earlier one. This poem is one which um, has a lovely rhyming lilt to it. Of course, not all poetry is written that way. This one's by Henry Price, and it's called I Wonder. Could Homer walk this hill and hear the song of cannon high and clear, the roar of caissons jolting past, the hiss of bullets and the blast of shrapnel over yonder trees? I wonder, would he sing of these? Could Homer see this field and spy the walking wounded reeling by with wet, wet rounds and faces grey, each help, each along the way? If he could see these broken men, I wonder, would he sing again? I wonder that my imaginings might be as blind, old Homer sings, but if he touched this cold machine that slays beyond the hills unseen and heard the song of yonder lark, I wonder would he bless the dark. Could I walk here in dreams and find the violet and all her kind and down among the blossoms lie to hear the singing hours go by if then a gun should bid me wake I wonder if my heart would break I wonder why the sunlight falls so gay on yonder broken walls I wonder why that soldier lies with bloody lips and smiling eyes I wonder is that death and yet I know, my dream is to forget. That's from Henry Price. Real men and women served in the First World War and they've served in all theatres of war since. And I think as Christians it does as well to reflect on what the Bible has to say about the underlying cause of war. There are books and books and books that have been written about the causes of war and of course, they're, they're all interesting. I, I find it interesting. But as we've seen, fundamentally the issue is that there are those who are given over to the wicked one for all kinds of reasons. And the only way to lasting peace is for people 
to submit, to surrender to Jesus Christ. And until they do, and that isn't going to happen, until Christ returns, of course, and reigns victorious, and then we shall know peace. In the meantime, each one of us has to determine what our response will be should the call come. And that passage that is so often um, quoted, greater love has no man than him who will lay down his life for his friend, is one which has been used often in the context of war. So there you have it. From Anzac Biscuits to the Word of God, just some reflections that perhaps are relevant this Anzac Day, 2016, 101 years after those first Anzacs landed at Gallipoli. We might now take some time.